This is the place where the explicit language warning goes. But on this podcast, there is no explicit language. Think of it as like the page on a legal document that says, this page intentionally left blank. It's Thursday, September 15th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Vladimir Putin has some internal critics, and if I were them, I'd worry about the liquefaction of their internal organs. Novichok scares you. It should. More than 30 Russian municipal deputies have signed a petition calling for President Vladimir Putin's resignation over the handling of the war in Ukraine. That number has since increased. I see different numbers, some close to 100. I don't know what kind of job security or life insurance these people think they have, but I think they're going out on a limb or a ledge, literally, by force. Please, Russian municipal deputies, be mindful of windows. Know your windows. Window awareness. Putin critics seem to have the same relationship to windows as kids on a Mountain Dew commercial have to crags overhanging gullies and ravines, only they land with more of a splat in Russia. The courts have already fined a handful of the municipal deputies for daring to call for the president's resignation. And there are some sites, Euronews.com is one, I don't know how authoritative they are, but they keep running tallies of prominent Putin critics who are no longer available to offer up a quibble or a cavil, owing to their very much being dead. A couple of days ago, Ivan Pechorin, a top manager at the Corporation for the Development of the Far East and the Arctic, was found dead in Vladivostok after allegedly falling off his luxury yacht. Non-slip deck threads, people! No, Vladimir, I said deck threads, not death threats. By the way, that same corporation for the development of the Far East and Arctic, their general director, then 43-year-old Igor Nozov, and forever 43 years old, because he was not allowed to live longer than May 21st, he had a reported stroke after taking over the reins of that company. And two weeks ago, the chairman of the board of Russia's largest private oil company died in what Russian news agency called an accidental fall from a hospital window. When the war started, Ravil Maganov did not cheerlead. He instead expressed his company's, quote, deepest concerns about the tragic events in Ukraine and called for the soonest termination of the armed conflict. Took a couple months, but there was, in fact, a termination. Putin or Putin loyalists or just the shoddy Russian window installation industry do show they're keen at amassing a high body count among anyone in Russia who dares defect from the party line. The problem for all of them is that the Ukrainian people, leadership, and military are not so easily dispatched of. Either that or they just know to stick to the first floor. On the show today, it's an international trade spiel. International trade as in one deceptively mid-sized Nordic Isle for one situated in the Caribbean. Who says no first? Do we got a deal? But first, actually, but first, but first, I do ask you to go to the Apple Podcast page, should you be so inclined, and leave us a review, a written review, and it's not because it helps others find us, and it is not because it's an example of podcast hygiene. It's pretty selfish. There's been a review up there. Some are good, some are bad, that's all fine. But one saying that I'm against blind people. And if we get a few more reviews that don't even comment on that and tell me if you like me or tell me if you don't, just 
be honest about what I am for or against, we'll have the sentiment that Mike don't like the blind pushed down a little. And that would make me a little bit happier. Speaking of happier, oil prices. Am I right? Last time we talked to Pulitzer Prize winning expert in oil, Daniel Jurgen, it was 2020. And back then, oil prices went negative for a time. But you see what's changed since. You might not know where Brent crude closed today, but you do know the general direction. We will discuss commodities, geopolitics, and the environment with the author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, and advisor to five presidents, Daniel Jurgen. up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Talking to Daniel Jurgen about energy is like talking to Archimedes about levers. In both cases, we're talking about things that move the world with the expert. Jurgen is vice chairman at S&P Global. He's been an advisor to four or maybe now five presidents in a row. His latest book with a new epilogue is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Daniel Jurgen, welcome back to The Gist. Glad to be with you again. Now, I know you started with the Clintons and were on the board that advised all the presidents. Is that continuing through the present? Uh, informally, I mean, I have a dialogue with the administration, but I'm not on the Secretary of Energy Advisory Board, which I was there for four for, for presidents, which was, you saw a lot of, some continuity and a lot of change. Was that a disappointment? If I were them, I'd want the Pulitzer Prize winning author and expert of the prize on my board. Well, I'm still, I'm on what's called the National Petroleum Council, which advises the Secretary of Energy and in fact, leading a study on energy transition. So I'm still very much in, in that dialogue. So last time we talked was in 2020. By the end of that year, U.S., just U.S. oil production would go from, I think, 
13 million barrels a day to 11. Oil prices went negative, kind of a quirk of the markets, but went negative for a time. Now that we talk in later in 2022, the picture has changed remarkably. And from a layman's perspective, it would seem that the war in Ukraine is driving much of this upheaval. Is that right? Uh, It's partly right. And I think more upheaval is going to come over the next couple of months. However, I think that, uh, as you said, in 2020, we went to hard to believe negative prices. People were paying people to take their oil away. And uh, but the markets changed and they changed dramatically with the economic rebound that came with coming out of the lockdowns. And uh, already, Mike, about a year ago, we really were already moving into a global energy crisis. Gasoline prices were high in November, well before Vladimir Putin invaded uh, Ukraine. And it was really a question that uh, of insufficient supply, insufficient investment to make this, to, to meet this big rebound in demand. Then this global energy crisis collided with the global geopolitical crisis, which is where we are today. Russia contributes to what? What, about 10% of the world's oil supply? Exactly. So when 10% of the supply gets not even cut off, because they're still selling to India and China, but disrupted, why does it result in a 25, 35, 50% spike in prices? Well, because I guess, you know, like all markets, it operates at the margin. If you have a disruption uh, of some supply, I mean, I guess the point is, Mike, going into this, the balance between supply and demand was very tight. That was a problem. So you take any oil out of the market and it sends the price up. Now, we've seen over the last few weeks, the oil price come down considerably from where it spiked to uh, earlier in the war. But we're now and there it's basically slow down in economic activity. It's the Fed raising interest rates. It's the expectation of a recession. So oil price is very sensitive to what happens to GDP. To growth. So anytime uh, supply can't meet demand, you're going to get uh, price rises that are perhaps not commensurate with the amount that supply doesn't meet demand. Right. Or even or even when you get close to a, a point where uh, supply is bumping up against demand, that's and that's certainly what we've had. Now we've had some uh, some easing, but uh, we'll talk about why it might get bumpier again as this uh, next few months. But looking back at how high prices rose, can we say that, you know, some of that is based on speculation of where the future would go? Were the traders speculating on that? And they take your advice, among others. Were they right? Were they right to be? Go ahead. Well, I think it reflected, uh, you know, looking at it, people worried about, will I be able to get the supply I need? And so going up and bidding up the price to lock up supply. Uh, Then as uh, we see... uh, you know, the Fed raising interest rates is now starting basically, I think the kind of general ethos in the global oil market today, it's quite different from the gas market, natural gas market, is that there's going to be a recession and, and that and recessions demand goes down and then you have more ample supply. So, you know, it's this basic story of supply and demand, very much affected by economics, but also f- affected by geopolitics, by wars. 
As far as raising interest rates and that will suppress uh, the demand for oil, supply and demand, I've heard an analysis from people in the markets who look at it slightly differently, which is that high oil prices to some extent act as a tax. There's only so much discretion in the amount of gasoline and oil that Americans use. And therefore that tax can act a little bit like high interest rates that can suppress economic activity and maybe bring down inflation. Do you see, is that a legitimate interpretation? Yeah. Well, certainly the rising oil prices, that jump in prices fed into inflation. I mean, if you were a teacher or a doctor and you were driving 30 miles or a nurse driving 30 miles to work every day, you know, those numbers really hit you. And I think you're quite right. I mean, price itself is a messenger and sometimes a painful messenger. So for instance, we saw in August and July, gasoline demand in the United States about six to eight percent lower than it had been the year before, which tells you that people were changing their habits or what they were doing, or maybe even carpooling or just driving less or staying home working remotely. Uh, and uh, in response to, to price, now it's eased up and people feel more comfortable tanking up again. Within the last couple of years, the United States achieved energy independence. We were no longer net importers of oil. Uh, is that still the status of this country? Yes, basically that's the case. I mean, it's, you know, in, in the new map, it just tell this extraordinary story that of how the U.S. went from being the world's largest importer of oil to actually being um, energy independent. Eight presidents from Nixon to Obama uh, promised energy independence. And uh, it seemed like a joke. You'd never get there. And then suddenly the position of the U.S. changed and uh, with dramatic uh, impact in ways that kind of people didn't see coming or forgot about or they forgot about energy security. And and we've seen that with the Biden administration suddenly having to adjust to the fact that you actually do have to worry about conventional energy supplies. No, energy independence certainly has some beneficial effects to, say, U.S. consumers, the amount that we could have been spending on foreign oil. We now can spend on other things economically. However, the way I think about it, it's been oversold a little bit. Energy independence would mean we weren't susceptible to, say, the vagaries of the market or, you know, the Saudi Arabians or people affiliated with their families funding uh, bad actors on the national stage or even Vladimir Putin. None of that's really come to pass. So if you're dealing with a commodity like oil, where there's this huge sloshing uh, uh, amount in the world economy, Economy. How much does energy independence really mean? Well, I think, you know, I think you're right to say, you know, it's not this panacea that suddenly means we're on another planet uh, and it means it's still one global oil market, but it means that a lot of money that is generated in this country stays in this country instead of going into the sovereign wealth funds of other countries. Uh, it means it creates a lot more jobs uh, and, you know, ultimately, uh, feeds into, you know, overall economic growth and improves our balance of payments. And one other thing that's really important, and you mentioned Vladimir Putin, it changes, uh, it changes the role of the United States in the world. And I'm, let me give you two examples if I can. One, in, in the new map, I, 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 I decided not to use the first person, the word I, so the, a lot of things in there are in the third person. But I describe how in 2013, at a conference in St. Petersburg where Putin and Merkel were together. And I asked the first question of Putin about, you know, you're too reliant on oil and gas revenues. But I said, Shale, and he started shouting at me, 
shales barbaric. And I realized that one, he knew that U.S. gas would compete and shale gas would compete with Russian gas in Europe, which is happening. And two, he knew that it would give the U.S. greater flexibility. I mean, I, I can see I work within the government of India and I can see in India the fact that the U.S. actually exports energy to India is one of the foundations of a better relationship. So that uh, I think those two things are part of the picture. And right now, I'll tell you right now, Europe is dependent upon the export of U.S. LNG. It's now part of its basic energy security. And that would not have been possible 10 years ago. Liquefied natural gas, how much less carbon emitting or less, in? because I think methane's a big part, how much better is it for the environment or less bad, I think we should look at it, than traditional oil? What it's doing is replacing Russian gas. So that's what, um, the second thing is that uh, it has great, if you look at the things that come out of international organizations like the International Energy Agency, they said one of the biggest things you could do for climate change between now and 2030 is replace coal, which generates a lot more carbon with natural gas to generate electricity in Asia, where you have the fastest growth in electricity demand. So um, as a German um, economics minister, who's the leader of the Green Party, environmentalist, uh, and has been dealing with this crisis the other day, he said, uh, there's no black and white when it comes to energy. There are only shades of gray. Which is why I think on a slightly different issue of energy, the Germans have recommitted to nuclear in a way that is surprising to people who are looking at the uh, history of that energy source in that country. The Japanese, after the Fukushima nuclear accident, uh, shut down their nuclear, but they brought about back some of, some of their nuclear. They never shut it down completely. But German Chancellor Merkel decided on a weekend to shut down German nuclear, which was providing 20, 25% of its electricity. And they've been doing that over time. And one result of that is importing more Russian gas to generate electricity because you're not using nuclear. But they had three plants they hadn't closed down yet. And right now, just last week, they were debating in the German uh, parliament, the Bundestag, uh, let's not shut them down. Let's keep them going this winter because we're going to need the electricity. I mean, you know, sitting in the United States, people don't realize what an economic disaster Europe is going through right now because of what's happening to shortages of energy. And they were pretty dependent on Russian natural gas for generating electricity. Yeah, I can't believe the projected heating cost rise. I, I You look at a business, just reading about businesses in France and the UK, where their heating bills are going to be literally 10 times the amount they were last year. Yeah, it's 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 a, uh, exactly that number. And just to put it in gross terms, Europe would spend about 100 to $150 billion a year in total on what's called wholesale electricity. That number is going to be over a trillion dollars. People are being wiped out. Families are being impoverished. And, you know, kind of the economic foundations of, of Europe are really under attack right now which is jobs, stability. And by the way, this is Vladimir Putin's strategy to create economic hardship and, 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 and force and break up the coalition supporting uh, Ukraine. He's actually said that in June, that that's what he's intending to do. He's waging war. This is an energy war in Europe. This is an extension of the war with Ukraine being fought in the energy markets of Europe. I have heard it argued that countries like Germany and Italy are too dependent on Russian energy. Okay, I understand that a huge percentage of their energy comes from Russia, but 
considering we're talking about a commodity on the world stage, and that's where the most affordable energy was available, can you fault the governments for, quote, over-dependence on Russian energy? I think you've made a very profound point that gets put aside. I mean, it really goes, when you had the collapse of the Soviet Union, you either could say, let's let Russia with its nuclear wreck weapons rot, or let's integrate them into the Western economy. And part of the way to integrate them was to buy inexpensive Russian uh, energy, particularly natural gas. So I think that, and it was economically sensible. I think the mistake they made was not trying to build in energy security, not building in more alternatives. I think they became over-dependent. And now Germany is hustling. They've now commissioned five uh, LNG importing stations to import LNG from the United States and other countries. If they'd had that in place, that would have been the, the right thing to do. Winston Churchill, on the eve of the First World War, when he converted the British Navy from coal to oil, was asked about energy security. He said, safety lies in variety of variety alone, diversity. And I think they were not wrong to import the energy. It was economically sensible, but they didn't build alternatives because they didn't. They just didn't conceptualize that a situation like this could emerge. When you talk about the, in the book, in the new map, there's many chapters on what a revolution and what a technological achievement the shale revolution was. It truly is a revolution. It was a technology that people dismissed sort of like cold fusion. This will never happen. And then it happened. And maybe now, or certainly now in America, uh, especially among one of the political parties, shale and fracking is a dirty word. But if you just take a step back and look at it objectively, it has in many, many, many ways helped America's energy picture. And it's a triumph of technology. That's quite right. But it's interesting because, you know, you've had actually President Biden and you've had Secretary Energy Secretary Granholm actually turning around to the U.S. oil and gas industry and saying, by the way, could you produce more? And the more is shale. And, you know, it's now been a, you know, a huge turnaround. And, you know, it's an industrial activity that just has to be regulated properly. But uh, and the question is, if we weren't producing oil in this country, we'd be importing it from the Middle East or somewhere. The shipping of the liquefied natural gas, is that as much of a technical achievement as Shell is? Well, the LNG business goes back actually, you know, many decades to the 1960s, 70s and 80s. So technically that business, but it was countries like Qatar or Australia or Indonesia that were exporting it. The turnaround was the U.S. had this huge abundance of natural gas and that we could liquefy it. And so... You know, in 2003, it was thought the U.S. was going to be the largest importer of LNG in the world because we didn't have gas and then came the shale revolution. And so really, the, the, it was not a technical breakthrough. It was a sort of an economic, industrial engineering breakthrough that the U.S. is positioned now to be the world's largest exporter of LNG. So I think in America, shale fracking has a very pejorative connotation and liquefied natural gas does not. I think a lot of it has to do with the words. Fracking seems somewhat uh, aggressive. Yeah, it wasn't from a branding point of view, that was not the best choice. That's right. You know, it's like, what is that short for? Fractured or something worse? But compare the environmental costs of each, if you would. Well, I think that... um with natural gas, uh, the, the, you know, the main thing right now, the big focus is capturing methane when you produce oil or natural gas. 
that's the you know that's the that's the big initiative and you know it's a technological issue it's not it's not incredibly hard and in fact i think it's being done and so that's where the biggest focus is right now um you know one reason the us leads the world in the reduction of uh of uh of co2 is we've used natural gas to replace coal so that you know if you look at it and compare us to europe you can see that the us has actually made the biggest advances and it's shifting the balance in our uh, electric generation and tomorrow we will continue on with daniel jurgen talking about California's decree that they will not have carbon-emitting cars by the year 2035, how or if an oil cap would work, and all the interactions that Jürgen had with his classmate in college, a guy who we now call King Charles III. And now, the spiel. Today's topic, international trade. Oh no, not import-export balance or WTO agreements. I mean trading two territories between two nations. The new book, The Divider, Trump and the White House 2017-2021, by journalists Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, writes of a proposed trade, Puerto Rico for Greenland. Straight up, no archipelago to be named later. Now, it's been widely reported that Trump wanted to buy Greenland, which is, of course, ridiculous. I mean, a guy with his credit history, come on. But this, the trade, it kind of makes sense. I mean, not to the world of the rational, makes sense that Trump would pursue it. Before the deal went through, Trump would certainly buy up a lot of coastal property and his climate policy would render that all balmy beachfront within the next couple decades. It does highlight that owning Greenland is a good position to be in, which is why Denmark didn't want to give it up. They didn't even deign to consider the offer, which is, you know, Weird, because they literally are Danes. But the new reporting is that there was this offer to trade the two territories. International trade. Let's examine how smart a businessman Donald Trump is. Population of Greenland, 56,000. Population of Puerto Rico, 3.2 million. GDP of Greenland, 3 billion. GDP of Puerto Rico, 100 billion. You don't want to give one up for the other. Not a good trade. Though getting rid of 3.2 million Latinos does fulfill, if not a Trump promise, then at least a strong implication. The base would like that. Trump, perhaps remembering back to his days as a young man, waved into Studio 54, was perhaps attracted to Greenland's cool-sounding disco island. That's disco with a K. Maybe Trump wants to recast West Side Story as a battle between the sharks and the Inuit. Although, remember Story Daniel's report that Trump is afraid of sharks? Maybe that explains some of his anti-Puerto Rican sentiment. Also, Donald Trump has so many insecurities that he projects onto others. And now, if this trade went through, we'd have to add to all his other projections the Mercator projection. That's the map that makes Greenland look way bigger than it is. I can actually see map proportions being absorbed into the most idiotic aspects of our grand national dunkathon with the cartography wars taking shape via t-shirt and hashtag sported by Eric Trump or Candace Owens. Trump's foray into Alabama hurricanes, remember that, showed he was an eager map doodler, so he'd be game. Many of Trump's ideas, reflecting now, now that we see clearly 
them for what they were. They were, let's call them weird and very stupid. But this one acted differently than many of the others. Usually, the more inane the idea was, the more Trump hyped it up. But he did keep the Greenland for Puerto Rico swap under wraps. And my theory is he wasn't ashamed by the quality of the idea, but he was perhaps slightly chastened by the fact that he couldn't get it done. Art of the deal, indeed. So the trade did not go through. I think Puerto Rico might have had a no trade clause, but there is an international trade that I would certainly make. First, some background. Election results in Sweden are in, and the incumbent center-left Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson has resigned. She conceded defeat in a close election. Though Andersson, Sweden's first female Prime Minister, is personally popular, and though she did steer Sweden towards NATO, which is also a popular move, all incumbents everywhere in the world are facing the headwinds of inflation and energy concerns. But in Sweden, there was another big issue, as France News 24 explained. But law and order is home turf for the right wing. And the Sweden Democrats, a party with neo-Nazi roots, is riding the wave of fear over gun violence. Yes, gun crime. Immigrant gangs fighting over the drug trade have contributed to an increase in shootings in this normally peaceful nation. In fact, murders have risen tenfold in the last 15 years. But let's take a second to see where they started. In 2006, there were five gun murders. Not five per 100,000, five total. Now it's nearing 50. Swedish police this year, quote, have recorded 273 shootings in what they expect could be Sweden's worst year ever. The current record number of shootings was set in 2020 at 379. That from the New York Times. In a Bloomberg story headlined, Rattled by Gun Violence, Swedish Voters Embrace Nationalist Party, they, quote, Artivan Kushnud, a criminologist and physician at the Skane University Hospital, says, quote, when it comes to shootings, we are far above the European average. And he describes the situation with these words. The situation when it comes to gun violence is very serious, very dark. Yeah, very dark. Over 300 shootings projected in a country of 10 million people. Let's, however, contrast this to, I don't know, not Yemen, not Honduras, but the city of Chicago, city of 2.7 million people, where in 2021, the last year for which there's full statistics, there were, oh, not 300 shootings, 3,172 shootings. Chicago is 25% the population of Sweden, but has more than 900% of the gun crime. So that's the trade I'd make. I would trade Sweden's gun problem for Chicago or really any population center of two and a half million people, no matter how big you draw the boundaries. America is guaranteed to be many times more deadly than Sweden's. How is Chicago handling their crime problems, you ask? Not great, I'd say. So we should say the police in Chicago did have this problem of shooting and killing suspects as they ran away. So they instituted a general don't chase policy except in cases of imminent danger to the community. Well, as a result, how could this have been foreseen? There are many instances of crimes and carjackings where the tactics of the thieves are, if you get the stolen good, just be evasive. You can be sure the cops will let it go. CWB Chicago crime news site reported, quote, surveillance videos show a serial armed robbery team mugging a man at gunpoint minutes after the footage was recorded. 
Chicago police officers spotted the robbers in a getaway car, but a Chicago Police Department supervisor ordered the cops to stop following the vehicle when it reached the expressway. A supervisor adhering to the police department's strict vehicle pursuit guidelines ordered the officers to break off and let the car go. That same outlet also reports that Chicago cops stopped pursuit and follows of a single robbery cruise vehicle on five different occasions. And that specific crew is believed to have robbed over 50 people, robberies which have included pistol whipping and firing shots. So the don't pursue criminal decree has some quite obvious downsides. And the let crime become what your populace regards as a giant overweening question, that has downsides too. Certainly electoral downsides for former Prime Minister Anderson's party. And by the way, the coalition that takes power in Sweden includes the Sweden Democrats. Of course, why not? Sweden Democrats sound normal. Oh no. That party was founded in the 1980s by neo-Nazis and other far-right extremists. The Sweden Democrats have reportedly rehabilitated their image somewhat by expelling extremists, not, as it happens, just letting extremists get away if they try to evade. Though, having considered it all and where the Sweden Democrats are in the electoral scheme, I might trade America's far-right extremists for Sweden's, actually. The Swedish version actually sounds a little bit better than ours do. In fact, all of the problems of that Nordic nation seem preferable to ours, and I don't think that's a distortion foisted upon us by Mr. Mercator. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the just assistant producer. Joel Patterson's the just senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO, criminologist, and physician of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>